0: Welcome to the Motoring Podcast, a Cité de l'Automobile and Schlumpf Collection Special Edition. Hello, I'm Alan, and I'm all on my own this time, because this is what was really originally going to be the uh, Geneva Motor Show uh, Special Edition, um, which wasn't going to involve the Cité de l'Automobile and the Schlumpf Collection, but, you know, circumstances and all that kind of thing. Uh, so I decided that I would go over and I would I would be in France for the week uh, surrounding the Geneva Motor Show. Anyway, uh, the plan being to then head over to Switzerland, uh, do on the press days, and then head back to France again. Uh, but that wasn't to happen. Uh, so I decided that somehow I needed to save my, my need for lots and lots of cars in a big building um, at the start of March. And what I did was I drove two and a half hours east uh, to Malouz, right on the Franco-German border. Uh, And I went to revisit the Cité de l'Automobile and the Schlopf collection. Uh, So it's one of the largest car museums in the world. It has over 400 cars on display uh, at any one time. And I have been before. I went and I visited in about 2004 when a friend and I did a bit of a grand tour of Europe. I went to Nürburgring and the old old Porsche Museum, the old Mercedes Museums. Uh, And uh, we finished up with the Schlumpf and the Cité de l'Automobile. So I figured that this was as good a time as any to, to revisit it. One of the things that is is worth mentioning, um, and and I I tell you this because I'm going to explain why I'm about to go right through the history, uh, is that I didn't realise that the timeline and the history of how how the Schomburg Collection uh, and everything ended up being uh, these of national. What the French National Automobile Museum uh, came about, and I thought it was just a really, really smooth, simple bequeathing type setup, but it really, really wasn't. So before we move on to to my outside broadcast uh, bit, where I sort of run around between exhibits, getting breathless and excited, and there's lots of background noise uh, and all these kind of things, I thought, what I'd do is I'd actually run through some of the history. Uh, of of the collection and and how it came to be where it is and how it came to be size it is and and all these kind of things. So the collection was originally started uh, by the Swiss-born uh, brothers uh, Hans and Fritz Schlumpf. Uh, they made their money in wool trading uh, and in the textile industry because uh, malouz uh, and that. Region of Alsace that it's in was famous not not just for lace uh, from Alsace, but but just generally the, the the textile industry. Fritz was the guy who was the real car nut. Uh, he bought a Bugatti Type 35 just before the German invasion in, of France, and after the war, he started uh, taking part in classic rallies uh, until the unions at the the Willow mills. Um, asked him not to, please, because it was really quite dangerous and they didn't want to lose their, their their director. So he stopped racing classic cars and from about the 1950s, he started buying them. The reason it was the 1950s was that this was the point where people were trading in their, their seemingly uh, old-fashioned 1920s and 1930s cars for newer, more modern ones integrated and enclosed wheels and and um and wings and headlamps and all that kind of thing. And what happened was that the Schlumpf Brothers started buying up the best of these 1920s and 20, 1920s and 30s cars that were that were getting traded in because they they really weren't they really weren't worth much to be perfectly honest. Um but yeah, they built a real reputation for for buying up really really good 20s and 30s cars. As it got into the 1960s the collecting got really really serious. So in the summer of 1960 alone, to give you an idea, they bought 40 cars including 10 Bugatti, three Rolls Royce, two Hispano Suiza and a Tatra. In 1962 it got even worse. They bought they bought a 50 Bugatti. They sent a letter round to uh, all the members of the Bugatti Club Register saying, We'd like to buy your Bugatti, please. Do get in touch. And, fifth, and people sold chunks of collections. They were buying these things. They were buying these things in the tens at a time. Uh, you know, in 1963, they bought 18 of Vittorio Bugatti's personal cars, including the, the Coupe Napoleon Royale. Uh, And then they also bought, as if that wasn't enough, you know, just the mere 18 Bugatti, uh, the entire 30-car collection from uh, John Shakespeare, who's a a US collector. They managed to keep the sheer scale of the collection relatively secretive uh, until about 1965, when there was an article in the local newspaper that allows us. At about the same time, about 1966, they actually started on building a, a private museum to be able to... See and understand what they had uh, and to be able to show it off to to friends, to interested parties. So they began with one of their mills in Malouz, which is now Cité de l'Automobile. And they cleared out the inside um, completely of one of the floors to make a 17,000 square meter exhibition hall. Uh, And they started up a team of restorers uh, to work on the collection. And that really was when it accelerated. By 1967, they had 105 Bugatti alone. But all of that was to change in about 1976, when the textile industry uh, in Alsace started to suffer from cheaper imports. They ended up with with strikes in the factories, uh, and that led to union condemnation of the brothers. They tried to sell up, tried to sell the factories for one franc uh, but nobody took them up on it. There were, there were absolutely no takers whatsoever. Uh, so they resigned. They moved to Basel in Switzerland, just across the border, and never ever returned to France again. Uh, and legal proceedings started uh, were started by creditors and former employees. On the first of March, nineteen seventy-seven, the trades union, the CFDT trades union, occupied the warehouse renamed it from the Schlumpf Museum to the Workers' Museum and said, we'll give it back when we have our jobs back. They opened it to the public and returned to a small donation towards legal costs and there were hundreds of thousands of visitors. Of course, this was a, the whole setup was, was in a little bit of a, a perilous uh, position at that point. And in 1978, the French government listed the collection as a historical monument, which it still is today. And that made it an offence to remove any part of the collection from France. Uh, And following a court of appeal ruling in 1979, the union uh, closed their version of the museum and handed back the factory keys. Uh, Ultimately, uh, in 1981, the collection was sold to a consortium called the National Motor Museum Owners Association. I'm sure that works much better as an acronym in French. Uh, Consisting mostly of local government organisations. They paid 44 million francs for it. And if you take the old guide of 10 francs the pound, that's 4.4 million pounds. Um, I'll let you do some maths and work out just actually how cheap that was. And other people did that maths as well. It took 20 years before a judgment was made uh, in the Schlump brothers' favour regarding that undervaluation. On 10th of July 1982, the collection opened as the National Motor Museum. Uh, so just before I move to the outside broadcast, it's worth saying uh, how much work has been done since I last visited. Uh, there's an awesome new entrance, uh, a new atrium, a fabulous footbridge uh, from the car park and tram stop uh, across the canal. And the there's this really cool sculpture of, I believe it's 17 uh, cars. And they're a sort of generic race car shape. Uh, they're not actual cars which are sort of outside and inside the the, of course massive uh, glazing uh, on the front of this this new atrium and it's really really cool it's such a fantastic bit of sculpture there's also a new autodrome a sort of uh, a shortish uh, oval track that they have built outside Uh, that's used for meets Uh, can be used by clubs uh, and exhibitions Uh, and it's also used uh, during uh, weekends, during the summer to show off some of the collection. History lesson over. Let's jump back through time to me actually on the floor of the exhibition hall. I'm sitting here in the middle of the the collection. I have cars reaching pretty much every direction away from me um it's it's quite it's quite an amazing space here actually Uh, and it's blocked off a little bit because they're doing works because this is obviously the off season uh, because everybody's expected to be at geneva uh, rather than wandering around alsace uh, to, to get their fix of of cars in buildings um but anywhere you stand here right at the moment Uh, you can see about, oh, at least 50 cars. Um, The collection is about 400 strong, uh, and it's arranged mostly, and I'll come to why it's mostly uh, in a bit, Um, and it's arranged mostly in sort of date order. Uh, So when you start the tour right at the beginning, then you begin with, with the sort of, minimum viable car, uh, and the, the essentially horseless carriages from uh, right back at the start of the, uh, the 20th century, end of the 19th century. There is, well, because of where we are in the world, there is a little bit of a, a, a sort of Franco-German, funnily enough, um, a guide to that um, is very much... Uh, when it comes to the the choice of cars, but I guess it's what was available to the brothers at the time that they were buying, and of course, it's the French National Automobile Collection. So, uh, so that's going to have an impact on itself. But you, you essentially work your way up and down some of some of the rows here, um, and we're going right from the very earliest. Let's have let's pick one at random here: a Panhard Levasse um, two cylinder one point seven liter um, essentially a garden shed with the, with some seats on the on the front of it, and of course the engine un underslung and, and the system pan well, funny enough um, hasn 't quite worked its way out yet, so the radiators are towards the back the engine is at the front, um, and this one 's chain drive uh, running back from it, a gearbox somewhere in the middle. So it's almost there. it's getting there, um, but there's also these tiny little sort of cycle cars, uh, almost where they've got you know the passengers face the drivers, uh, and they've got a little frilly frilly roof on them, which is obviously for only taking out in in good weather and on nice days. I think the thing that always strikes me whenever I'm in museums like this of of old cars it's just the variety of color. I mean, whenever we whenever we think of vintage cars, or whenever I think of vintage cars, maybe it's just me, um, then I always think that they're going to be black or, or grey. Uh, and then you come to a museum uh, like this, where there are vehicles which either were restored an awfully long time ago um, or have never really been touched, and you realise that they're yellow and they're red and they're... Just about every every colour you would think of, um, and yeah, and and as we as you you follow the tour around here, um, I'm trying not to give too much away because the idea is that you come and see this yourselves. Um, then, of course, they become more and more towards what we think of as a car. So, as I say, following that system panel with the With the radiator at the front, the engine in the middle, the gearbox behind the engine, uh, and then uh, probably rear-wheel drive. Now I've just got to work around this piece of construction work. Uh, And that is going to bring me to about the 1930s and the 1940s. Uh, One of the things here, now I know I've just said that that most of the cars are sort of French or, or German, um, but absolutely not exclusively so. The, uh, uh, you know, the idea of buying the best cars um, uh, really didn't matter where in the world that they were from. So I'm standing here and I've stopped um, just at the end of one of the aisles and there's a fantastic pairing here of, of two cars which are neither French nor German. And um, one is a fantastic uh, scarlet, funnily enough, uh, Alfa Romeo uh, 8C from 1933. And right beside it is a green, funnily enough, uh, standard swallow, uh, an SS1, which of course, as we all know, was went on to become Jaguar. So you know, it's not it's not exclusively uh, France and Germany. Although I turn around to look behind me, and there's a wonderful Mercedes. What is it? It's 540k. It's a nice 540k from 1938. And beside that little steer Cabriolet, One of my favourite cars here actually is a Mercedes. And it's the Mercedes I don't really show you very much because it's the um, it's the 170h, which was a little 1.7 litre four-cylinder car, which looks an awful lot like a Volkswagen um, and that's because the 500e was not the first <laughs> Porsche Mercedes collaboration this is a little tiny little tiny uh, car um, which which was designed by Ferdinand Porsche and it really really looks like a beetle uh, it, it really is it's a beetle with three headlamps uh, and yeah, judging by the way, I don't know. This one's propped at the back. Many of the cars are actually propped to just keep the suspension, and everything, and the tyres, the right sort of shape. Um, but it looks like it's got some sort of swing axle at, at the back, as as ever, and that sort of weird, sort of the bottom of the tyres point in the way. Um, uh, it's like the opposite of stands. And I'm having a mental blank as to what it's called at the minute. Um, the other thing here, and I'll get to it when I get back to the end of the museum tour, uh, is the sheer number of Bugatti here, of course. Now, as I said in the intro, the Schlumpf brothers were buying Bugattis basically by the dozen. I mean, there's a I'm walking along. There's a lorry one, 1929, Camionette Type 40. And it is a Bugatti in blue, uh, in this instance, with essentially a wooden box on the back, um to to be used as a as a pickup truck. But there are Bugatti after Bugatti after Bugatti here. I mean if you pick a number, there'll be at least one of them. Um I was you know, in a little while we'll come, it's type thirty five, you go, Oh, I wonder which one it's what type that is, and it doesn't matter if it's a type A, type B or type C, they're all there. They're sitting in a they're sitting in a row. Uh, and these go from the very, very earliest sort of Doctor's Coupe-type Bugattis, which look like toy cars. I mean, they look like they're for children. There's one just over there. Um, Right the way up to, of course, the Royale. Um, There's a nice one. There's a Lancia Lambda. Now, if I remember rightly, um, it was... Now, I know it had front independent suspension, but I think... It was one of the first vehicles with with front brakes as well. I could be wrong on that. That was nineteen twenty nine. No, that can't be right. It must be the independent suspension fact uh, that there is about about that that one. So that's a nineteen twenty nine Lancia Lambda, only four cylinders. They look massive. There's a D Lambda from nineteen twenty nine. What's the difference? One's bigger than the other. Mm-hmm. There we go. That that was a, that was insightful, wasn't it? um but not just as there are all sorts of cars, there's all sorts of uh, all sorts of formats as well. And of course, all these ones which have died off along the way. So here's a Scott tri-car with a two-stroke, two-cylinder engine that puts out 12 horsepower and can reach 80 kilometers an hour. Although it's essentially a motorbike on one side. So it's got a steering wheel and a, uh, at the front, but it's right over on the right-hand side. And it's got two rear wheels. Um, and it looks like it's about to fall over, to be perfectly honest. There you go. Only five of these two seater cabriolets have, have survived. The designer Alfred Angus Scott made a remarkable vehicle for the transport of cannons. Nevertheless, a small series of vehicles uh, intended for civilian use was produced. That's so weird. And that's from 1923. What a strange one. Never heard of that before. Uh, Samsung Amocars. I like it because I'm me. Ooh, what's that? Is that Citron? No, it's not. It's a Mathis in bright, bright yellow. That's kind of cute. There's a little Citron. It's a little, uh, little baby one, and it's beside a Citron type torpedo type C3, which is that sort of classic, um, that kind of classic Citron. You know, with the the complete slab-sided wheels. Uh, it's the kind that you see in early Tintin books. Uh, if that makes any any difference to any of you or makes sense to any of you, uh, it, it's that sort of classic uh, old French car look there. Let's keep going. Expect lots of background noise with my bag over my head, and take a massive jump until we're in. Uh, I think we're in the future because there's a there's an Aston Martin Lagonda Series Two. Which I adore, and these are the most. These are about the most modern in the collection, uh, really. It goes up to a 512 TR in 1992. Um, well, there's a couple of exceptions. We'll come to those in just a minute, but uh, but yeah, that is kind of as far as it goes. And that's beside a beautiful 1976 uh, Alpine A110, uh, not the latest one, of course, but the 1.3 liter uh, uh, original. Um, yeah. And one of a few road going Ferraris here. It's a 250 LM, uh, the mid engine, the, the mid engine ones. Um, just over 2,000 kilometers on the clock. Unbelievable. What have we got? NSU ro little Simca, Citroën SMs, all the things you'd expect to find in the French Car Museum. Beautiful Panhard Type 24. Where else are we going? What else is there here? A Renault Renault Four. There's not so many Renaults here. Lots of Peugeot, uh, obviously, because just up the road is uh, is the main Peugeot factory at Sochaux. Um, I drove past it on my way here this morning, um, and it's it's a big, big factory. Um, but there's a real link between here and Malouz and of course, uh, and of course Sochaux there. So type 300 SL Gullwing. Lovely. <laughs> there are for those of you by the way who watch uh who's watched uh vids as he goes around uh australia new zealand visiting motor museums um whose style i'm definitely trying not to copy but but failing uh, 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 the, the not copying bit um there are no typewriters okay i've been around once already not a typewriter to be seen um what have we got here 1986 trabant 601 um with its uh two-stroke two-cylinder Duroplast body. Phenolic resin. I just think... I know that sound... I know it's awful stuff, but it sounds good. Um There's a 1954 2CV. That's lovely. That's sort of... Ultra shiny Chris Harris spec, that one. Uh, Renault 4CV. There is. Facing, uh, facing a Daimler. What's that? What type is it? DF302 1954 Daimler. Here is a Grégoire Sport. Which is... It's wide, it's got fins, it's got um, cross-spoke wheels, uh, and it looks absolutely wonderful. Um, Cast-adamined chassis, wrecked steering uh, It's from 1955, but it looks like the kind of thing you'd see, again, in a French comic book. And just completely... I don't know, I've never seen one of these before. Well, I've possibly seen this one before, because I've been here before about 20 years ago. But, um, but yeah, it's... It's weird. It's it's like the wheelbase is too short for the rest of the car, but they've been trying to be really American uh, and sort of international with it. So it's got sort of uh, Jaguar XJ-style little little um, peaks above the... I'm oh, not even XJ-style. It goes back further than that. I know the Mark X and stuff has them as well. Peaks over the headlamps. Um, it's got a big sort of egg crate grill uh, and, a, and, a, and a big sort of power bulge on the bonnet. And yet it's unmistakably French. Um, it really is. The strangest looking car. One of the challenges here, by the way, is is that the... Because of the way this was laid out way, way back in the 1960s, um, you only really get a clear view of the front of the cars. And, and that can make sort of trying to get an idea of what they look like all the way around rather difficult. There are a few exceptions. Um, but... Uh, But that's mostly the case, and it makes makes trying to get interesting photographs a little bit tricky, to be honest. Lots of Hotchkiss along here, more Bugatti on the other side. What's this one? This is the weirdest looking thing. That's a Cabriolet Type 101, Uh, V8 um, from 1952. So that must be one of the very, very last. There's a few 101s here. One, two, three, four. Um, it's only a small, only a small percentage, um, but yeah, this is this is all the sort of post-war. That's nineteen fifty-one. This one here is nineteen fifty-one as well. Uh, one hundred and one being the first Bugatti not designed by Ettore or, du- or Jean Bugatti, uh, and they only built six. Wait a minute, they only built six, and there's one here, two, three. It's Type 101, yeah, post-war. Four, and there's a space at the end which might be filled by a fifth one. Um, but yeah, there's um, two-thirds of the world's Bugatti 101 in a row. In the middle of the row, by the way, not in a special place, just in the middle of the row because that's all you need. I Absolutely adore these Peugeot Type 202s. You know the ones, the Peugeots with the where the headlamps are really inset behind the grille. Um, and they've got a sort of certain amount of of sort of aero streamlining to them. They've got rear pats over the rear wheel. Very, very sort of aero-styly front. Um, they are absolutely gorgeous. Um, it was... It's was a rear-wheel drive. Um, it was a great success, and 140,000 of them were sold. They were 1.1-litre engines. Uh, four-cylinder engines could do 105 kilometers an hour so just over uh, under 70 um for 30 30 horsepower it's a gorgeous looking little car really pretty fantastic stance the cabs right towards the back uh what else is here i got so distracted by the 101s that i completely forgot to talk about the tatra um type 87 here in it's this beautiful metallic green really nice uh, and, of course, with its, uh, its rear-mounted V8 engine, that cool sort of fin down the back, it's quite cool if you stand here and you look through the windscreen, which is three-piece in the windscreen, uh, you can sort of just see through the tiny rear window. And you can look and you can just see the end-on view of, of view of that fin. Just a minute, because I'm going to be really, really professional and take a photo whilst I'm speaking. But that means that you should be able to see it. When you're, watching, when you're listening to the show uh, and it's beside it's beside an Alzon the La Baleine, you'll have seen pictures of this thing and it's is it hideous? I don't know um, it's different uh, and distinctive it has a 3.5 litre engine from 1938 and uh, it doesn't actually say what it's based on or what the engine's out of but it's it's definitely one man's vision. Let's put it that way. I think that's the most polite way of, of talking about it. Um, I've trapped myself into a corner. Hang on, I'm having to double back on myself. It's my own fault for getting distracted by cars. Penny Mark 6, that's that Daimler. Penny Mark 6 again. What's the difference? Oh, one's only a two door, yeah. 300 uh, SC, uh, 300S Cabriolet, wonderful car, I've got a Corgi one of these, it's black, this one here is, is it grey? It's silver, let's call it silver, it's not really the sort of deep metallic silver we think of nowadays. Um, What's this oddity? Some of the stranger cars aren't on show, I'm sure I've seen other weirder stuff here before. Uh, here's a shortened Renault 4. I wouldn't really have given it much uh, much thought. So it's a Renault 4, two doors, no... I was going to say no rear doors, but that's pretty flipping obvious if I say two doors. Uh, shortened wheelbase, and it, it looks like it's been stuck in the boil wash. Um, but what's interesting about this one is that it was actually coach-built by a chap called Jean Bertin. And uh, I don't know, some of you... Uh, May know something came up in discussion on Twitter recently about the AeroTrain Train, uh, which was a, a sort of attempt at a, a sort of, um, <laughs> and, well, it's called the Aero Train. It was it was a train that was sort of that sort of was half plane, half train, and it ran on on special tracks. And there were a couple of test sites around France. But it was Jean Bertin who invented invented that. Um, Aero Train is one of these things. I'd like to go and visit some of the track at some point. Uh, I don't think there's any around here. It's probably going to be dark by the time I get out of here tonight. Um, so we shall see. But with uh, Renault Heritage, they, they restored this one. It really is the oddest looking thing uh, by someone who who really invented quite a lot of cool stuff. Quite a cool inventor. Oh, what else have we got here? I'll show a Obviously, it being France, there is a display of rally cars, including, surprisingly enough, an RS200. Um that was a really cool GT Turbo. Just to this day, the only standard car to manage to win a Rally in the World Championship. The Rally of the Ivory Coast in 1989 with Alain Auré and Gilles Timonier. That's kind of cool. And then the a 205 T16 because we're in France and we're talking about rallying. I can't remember the last time I was here. Which was a long time ago as I said it's there was a ZX T16 uh, here but that might well be that might well uh, have moved back to the Citroen Museum Um, lots of dramatic music because we're in the corner here beside one of the obviously with the number of Bugatti there are here there has to be a Veyron Veyron, um, and there is a special display uh, which is good because you know it's Geneva week as I record this and you can you can get withdrawal symptoms from from Bugatti Veyron just like you can get withdrawal symptoms from from fondue. Um, so yeah, it's quite cool. Lots of awesome video in the background. Big dramatic music. So I'm going to go into another room here, and this one is. It doesn't actually start with a Bugatti, believe it or not. But it starts with a Delange. And this is all the race cars. Okay, um, What's this one? There's, there's some here, which they have a little extra bit on their info. Which is which is saying that it's incontournable. So they're the ones that you have to not miss. Um, this is a 19, 1902 Serpollet B+ Course Type H is a very very early oh okay, it's a very very early race car and what's interesting about this is that it is a steam powered race car what could it put out? it could put out 40 horsepower and reach 110 kilometers an hour Um, they entered 7 of these in the 1903 Paris Madrid race which was kind of pretty much (laughs) pretty much infamous Uh, I believe it had a ridiculous death count um, from memory uh, it was abandoned at Bordeaux, uh, and the two best placed cellplay racers had clocked an average speed of 83 kilometers an hour. I'd be amazed if I managed 83 kilometers an hour and average to get here today. Um, that's quite ridiculous when you think about 1903. It's not as if they, they had auto routes to, to head along there. But what an amazing, oh, weird looking thing. It's got early aerodynamics and it looks a bit like a boat. Uh, on the top, oh, somebody's turned off some fans. That's good, it's quite a lot. Um Chain driven, just huge tubes underneath for the steam to expand into. Quite quite incredible. Um, also, in here are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 8. Within my sight, this first section is 18 Bugatti. Um, including this, the Type 32 tank. Um, from 1923, Tour Grand Prix. It reached 189 kilometres an hour uh, later on. That's ridiculous, in 1923. Here we go, I love these. If you had to ask me what my favourite Bugatti was, it has to be... A type 35 C. I just think they are just the prettiest of them all. They're just right. Um, I particularly like the Type 35. Uh, yeah. It just it's just the right shape, the right proportions. Um, the right I don't know, I just love the uh, I love the, the cast alloy, what are they, 10, 12 spoke wheels? Um, knockoff wheels. I love the I just, I just love the fact it's it's kind of aerodynamic, but it, it isn't really, and it's just this, this little perfect thing. I mean, it's it's not, it can't be that much longer than than, than my own car, and it, it's just, it's just gorgeous. It's it's just this fantastic, uh, fantastic piece of industrial design. I mean, the fact that it was hugely, hugely um, uh, successful. As well It's just the sort of cherry on the top. I just think it's beautiful. Um, and it's stuff like the Type 51 and some of the later ones. Sorry, I'm being a bit of a Bugatti nerd here. But they sort of, things started sticking out the side. So there's a 51. It's got a big exhaust down the side. Whereas on the uh, whereas on the 35C, it runs along the underneath. It, it's just, I'm sure the gear sticks and everything are out. The gear levers and, and handbrake and stuff. For external, um, but all of the mechanical stuff is all hidden away, and everything else just looks like it's a bit of a compromise. Ever since, I'm sure, you know, at the time I would have been shot down by a Bugatti for saying that. But I just think that that's what that, that they just don't look quite the same. If we're moving to the next next section here, it is mostly red and um, and blue of course still in national colours because we haven't reached the reached the era of sponsorship yet but there's two silver ones here there is a Silver Arrows um, uh, a W125 from 1937 as driven by Carasciola um, just yeah which is fantastic and there's a 1939 one as well um, with the, uh, uh, the magnesium alloy body uh, you just don't want to I just, just don't want to think of the value of these things Incredible. There's Ferraris, there's Maseratis, there's Sicitalia. There's all sorts. There's a Talbot Lego. What's this, this one? Does that relate to that one? Yeah, that's from 1949. Uh, as we get down, we move start to move into the mid-engined era. I mean, pretty much the last of the front engine to F1 cars here is this Maserati 250F from 1958. Just just this beautiful shark nose thing just just, it's an engine at the front it's a seat kind of in the middle and it's a fuel tank at the back it's got two and a half litre six cylinder engine and then we move into the mid engine world and we start off with some Brits yay got uh, so a couple of Lotus type 18 type 33 here um, that red one surprisingly enough is a Lotus uh, oh it was John it was uh, driven by Joe Seifert in 1963. That's why it's in red red with uh, white bands, because it's the, the Swiss national team, believe it or not. Uh, what have we got here? kart Porsche from 1988, 1983, Renault type RE40, the six-cylinder 1.5-litre uh, turbocharged car. Just do it with a super short nose. God, your, your feet are the crash—the crumple zone on that. That's Alan Prost's car. That explains why it can be so tiny. Uh, McLaren Peugeot. William Ren- Williams Renault's from 93, uh, 94 with a V10. It's on, oh, on the other side here. These are kind of cool. There's this one here, which is a 300 SLR. Um, I don't think it's a Sterling Moss one, but it's, it's a 300 SLR. It doesn't really matter by that point. And here's a good one, which I spotted earlier, the, 90, the Porsche 908LH from 1968, and this car came third twice at Le Mans in 1968 and 1972, which is kind of cool, a four-year-old car by the time it, 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 it hit the podium at Le Mans for the second time. What else do they Audi R8 r 8 so the open-top prototypes, Porsche RS Spies from 2006, I'd forgotten that these existed. It's from the ALMS Championship. Um, that's a Viper. There's no board for it. Uh, and then down the end here, we have two Schumacher Benettons from 1991 and 1993 Benetton Ford. So that's kind of most of the centre of it. And I say most of the centre of it, I mean, this is thousands and thousands of square metres. Because what is at the end here is another room, and it's marked the best of breed. And it's like the—it's it, a wonder we don't actually have to kneel as we go into it, given what's in here. So as I say, there's about four hundred cars on display. There are other temporary exhibitions, generally from sort of May through to November, October, November time. Um, so I've kind of missed those. But going into this this sort of room that's at the end here, it's one of these cases where it's—it's it's like a cathedral. You feel you should be whispering whenever you come into it, because this is the best of it. It's like where you've been round the Tower of London. And then you get to the Crown Jewels. And it starts off with this massive Renault uh, limousine. I mean, this this is this is not a clear or a Twingo, this thing. In fact, it's about the length of two Twingos. Um, 40 horsepower. And it really was a rival for, as it says here, Rolls-Royce, the Spaniel Suiza. And it's just... It's one of the ones where, by the way, there's no... There's no grille on the front. There's just a massive Renault badge. Uh, and then, of course, all it goes underneath. So in a time where... Cars are expected to have this big grill and big mascot on the front, like this farman here. With this, it's a. Uh, I have no idea what he's doing. It looks like an angel uh, on the front, and it's just uh, proper Grand Tourers in the way that some of these brands just don't make it. Well, there's a Hispano Suiza Cabriolet g 12 12 cylinders, 9.4 litres. Amazing. And it belonged to an actor called Henri Guerra It's just beautiful just amazing, and it's it's got black wings, and this is going back to the thing I said about colours earlier on, it's got black wings and boards, it's got red sides, and it's cream above with a black top, and it's just amazing that's a bunch of Hispanias so there's one, two because you know, you just trip over them all the time that's a two, three there and then I think there's some there's some another voisin, this is, uh, this is so cool this is a C28 So it's it's the one with the, it's got this kind of bracing straps that run from the top of the grille down to the front wings and it's it's a sort of real I don't know, it's, particular, it's futuristic from 1936, it's a bit aero it's a bit futuristic, the sides are kind of flat, so there's double curvatures in the bonnet, there's this wonderful Art Deco bonnet mascot with the um, where the wings slice straight up I mean, <laughs> pedestrian safety no way. Um, electromagnetic transmission and stuff on this. And, oh, the most amazing windscreen wipers. It's got a triple wipers. But the middle one is motorised, but they are mounted through the windscreen. Quite incredible. It's a limousine where the, the driver is exposed, because well, who cares about them? And standing here, I can see 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, certainly... 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, Bugatti. Oh, two of which are Royals, by the way. Um, As you do, you know, just drop them in there. But I've gone back to what I was saying about colours. There's a Type 43A Roadster here. It is purple. I mean, purple, purple, with red highlights and accents. And if you saw this as a Hot Wheels car or a Matchbox car... You would think it was just somebody making up a cheap Chinese copy. Just making up colours and going, yeah, I've got some purple and some red. And you'd think it looked a bit rubbish. I'm gonna be honest, it does. But it's genuine. It's the real thing. It's 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 the the real thing. And it's it's a forty three A roadster and it it's a it's basically a slightly bigger Type 35 that I was talking about earlier on. This one here is one of my favourites of all the cars here. It's this Type 46 in 1933. And it's really, it's trying to be a streamliner. So you've got the big grille up front, and then after that, they've sort of gone, hey, let's streamline this. And they really have done It's low, low, low. I mean, the rake of the windscreen's impossible. I don't think you could, you can barely fit your knuckles between the top of the steering wheel and, and the windscreen there. And of course, there's the Royale. There's, two. there's a coupe type 41 and there's a limousine as well. And they are just massive. Well, I don't know. They don't look as big as they did the last time I saw them, but then I live in a world where you can you can buy a Chevrolet Suburban long wheelbase. Oh I underestimated the number of Bugattis by the way because there's another nine down here at least. So the limousine type forty one. Things that's amazing about these of course is that uh, is that elephant mascot just just great just exactly right just um, described the car Incroyable. I hope you enjoyed that and that it's wet your appetite to visit yourself uh, the museum is on every day except Christmas Day from at least 10 a.m. until 5 p.m. longer during the summer Uh, At the time of releasing this, though, the museum is closed until at least the 19th of March as an anti-COVID-19 precaution. Do check the website linked in the show notes for up-to-date information on that. Uh, Access to the museum from the UK is easiest by road via the A35 and A36 autoroutes or by plane to Bar-Moulouse-Freiburg Airport. There are, of course, TGV connections to Moulouse from other parts of France. Uh, entry is €14 Euros most days, €16 Euros at the weekend from the 6th of April until 29th of September when there's an En Piste spectacular included too. Uh, that's the adult rate, there are concessions available as well. Just for a round-up though, uh, thanks finally to Anna Delamonte and Alice Barroné at Culture Space for helping to make my visit possible. So that rounds us up, but don't forget that between now and next time you can give us any feedback and share your thoughts with the show at Motoring Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, on Facebook, and on the contact page of motoringpodcast.com, the hub of all our activities. Please don't forget to leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or however your podcast app lets you do such a thing. It really, as always, does matter. To get in touch with me, it's best to use Twitter, where I'm at AJPBradley, B-R-A-D-L-E-Y. And to get in touch with Andrew, search for Cracked Windscreen on Twitter. We'll be back before very long, but until then, I've been Alan Bradley, and safe motoring.